Okay, you can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Uh, in view of Holy Week, that's coming up this week, we're going to take a break from the book of Galatians. And uh, today being Palm Sunday, we're going to focus on that, that which we've, we've already read and seen, and that's our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem. As he journeyed face like flint toward his incalculable, incalculable fierce suffering culminated on the cross. This was all for the salvation of man and the glory of God and his kingdom. In fact, all four gospel accounts include Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, so it's a very, very key thing in the life of Christ. In fact, I'm going to be drawing details from these four gospels as we walk through our text this morning. Before we read, I want to ask the question to you, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need right now? Let's read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life that you gave for us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you now teach us and remind us of Jesus and his work. We pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would enliven our hearts, that we may adore him more and more that we may be stirred up as your people. And Lord, I pray may the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. During the early part of the summer of 1989, I was nine years old and eagerly anticipating our family trip to Disney World. I could not wait to get there and experience the utopia of Disney. It was going to be amazing, I thought. And of course, in many ways, it was a trip of a lifetime. But what I did not expect was standing in line for hours to ride a ride for two minutes. I remember waiting for Space Mountain and Splash Mountain in the 95-degree sweltering heat of the summer. It was suffocating, and as a nine-year-old boy, the waiting was long and hard. 
Yeah, I had fun, but it was not what I expected. I did not expect to be bewildered by the long lines and the intense heat. I didn't expect that my mom would literally have to drag me through the park, encouraging me and coaxing me to keep walking, standing, waiting, no matter the 95-degree sweltering heat. Things are not always what they seem. This is a proverb that's been around for a long time. Things are not always what they seem. And this is the theme of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. For the people, the crowds that have been following him for a long time, from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem, and even the crowds that came out and greeted him from Jerusalem, things were not what they seemed. Before we move forward, I want to point you to the crucial question of our text. Look at verse 10 with me. And when he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And this is our main idea today. Our main idea is this. You must deal with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every human being on the face of the earth is challenged and called by God to deal with, to reckon with, who is Jesus and what did he do? And I want to approach our text in those two ways, just answering those two questions. First, who is Jesus? And then second, what was his work? So we'll dive into the first point. Who is Jesus? Concerning Jesus Christ, this is the most important question of all of history. Who is this? It's a vital question that we have to answer whether you're a Christian, whether you're a seeker, whether you're agnostic or atheist. You have to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? What we see here in Matthew 21 is as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the first time, during his minist- or final time during his ministry, he is moving toward the cross. Unknown to his disciples, he was facing death. He was facing persecution. Yet the crowds gathered and cheered loudly for him. They didn't fully understand his role. Much less did they embrace fully his mission of peace and how that peace would be brought about. According to Luke, Jesus had just left Zacchaeus' house. He had just told the parable of the unfaithful servant who buried his talent in fear. And now Jesus tells his disciples to go ahead of him into the village and find a colt that has never been ridden, untie it, and if anyone questions, just say the Lord has need of it. And of course, that happened. What is the ultimate significance of the colt? Well, as we've read earlier in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. This passage reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is what Matthew actually quotes here in verse 5. He is looking back to this prophecy and he's saying, It is fulfilled now when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So this act was an act of very high significance to the crowd, and it was an act of significance to Jesus himself, and I personally think was very strategic on his part. In effect, Jesus was revealing himself, albeit humbly. He was not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And in, Matthew, uh, in verse 9 of Matthew, it states this, And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna! 
to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna is a Hebrew word that simply means save us or deliver us. They were quoting Psalm 118.25, which states, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So the crowd even calls Jesus the son of David. They go a step further, which is no frivolous moniker or name. Essentially, they were calling him the Messiah King, the anointed one, the one that was long awaited for, anticipated for. He was here now. They were saying much more than maybe they even realized. And they saw Jesus as one coming to establish the kingdom of God now and forever. John's account in his gospel states that they even wave palm branches, which we get Palm Sunday from. This symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory, and and the crowd referred to Jesus even as the king of Israel in John's account. The Pharisees were startled. Yet in anger against Jesus and the crowds, they were again stirred up, angry at Jesus, angry at the crowds, and even compelled Jesus to shut them up. In Luke 19, verse 40, Jesus says that if these people do not praise him, even the rocks would cry out, knowing that he is the one who deserved all praise. Yet things were not what they seemed. Jesus had a very vastly different approach to his work and to his person, more vastly different than they could imagine. That moves us to our second point. What was Jesus' work? What was the goal or purpose of his life? The crowds were expecting a political revolution. They saw the power of Jesus to heal the lame, to feed the 5,000, to exercise demons, to calm the raging sea, to walk on water, and last but not least, to raise Lazarus from the dead. Surely a man this powerful has to be the Messiah who will overthrow the Roman yoke of dominion and domination over Israel and establish his earthly kingdom now, in that moment. What they sought through politics was not workable, not possible. Political jockeying would never bring about the true peace that they really needed and longed for. And even now, we need to square up with this reality the right political system or the right political leader will not bring the true peace that we crave deeply in our hearts. What the crowds didn't understand was they had more terrible and more dominating enemies than Rome or Herod or Pilate or Caesar. They didn't see that their primary enemies that had terrorized and ruled over them for all their lives were sin, Satan, and the world. Beyond that, they had an even greater enemy. That enemy loomed large in the background, and that enemy is God himself. You see, because of the sinfulness of man, God's wrath was and is imminent. No amount of ritual purity or good works or number of visits to worship in the temple could satisfy the wrath of God. Romans 8, 7 states this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
And Romans 5.10 states, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. This is what Jerusalem failed to grasp, which led our Lord to weeping over the hard-heartedness of His own people. Actually, in Luke's account, in Luke 19.41, this verb of Him weeping could be translated as loud mourning or cries of wailing, a deep lament over His people. Jesus emoted an intense feeling outwardly. But why? What well, says it in verse 42 of Luke 19, Jesus states, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And thus Jesus weeps and mourns over the unbelief of His people, His own people. So peace, true peace, what is it? And how can we get it? In short, Jesus is speaking of peace with God through a perfect vicarious sacrifice. It's what Paul spoke of in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was not the Roman government that needed purging. It was the very hearts of God's people. And eventually the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that would come to know Him. And it's not just them, those people long ago, but also us. We need purging. We need cleansing. We need and long for the true righteousness and peace with God and from God. This is our real need amidst a sea of felt needs. Let me ask Caleb, why do you focus on this? What, what's going on with this pointing toward our real need amidst felt, felt needs? I'll say this, here in the South, there's a tendency, and it could be in many places throughout the world, there's a tendency for us, churchgoers especially, to forget the heart of the gospel. We can get carried off on many tracks away from the gospel, away from a good view of Jesus' person and His work. We're often carried away by idols and ideologies that we turn to in order to medicate our fears and anxieties. Yet everything we seek other than the Lord will fail us, and we yearn for more. A couple of years ago, while driving through Dothan, Whitney and I noticed an old pickup truck with a large paragraph of stickers on their back windows, just a big block of stickers, bumper stickers. As we stopped at the red light, we were fortunate to be able to read what is one sticker we called the Fisherman's Prayer. And this illustrates my concern. It read this way. I pray that I may live to fish until my dying day. And when it comes to my last cast, I then most humbly pray. When in the Lord's great landing net and peacefully asleep, that in His mercy I may be judged big enough to keep. See, embedded in this little saying is the belief that salvation is all on you, the fish. That maybe, just maybe, you'll be good enough to keep, big enough, pretty enough to keep when God sets His eyes on you in the great judgment. I don't encourage you, no, this is categorically wrong. This is not the gospel. The scriptures say that you had no ability to actually obey God's law perfectly. You can't be good enough to keep in and of yourself. In fact, you were born as a traitor against a cosmic king. That is Jesus himself. 
The only deliverance for this act of treason is pardon from him, the great king. And this is what makes the gospel good news. The fact that you're guilty of cosmic treason, the sentence for you and your sin is eternal damnation in hell, separated from God and all his goodness forever. That's the bad news. The good news is that God in his mercy has extended you pardon through the suffering of Christ on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. This is what we call Holy Week. This is what it's all about, is looking at the events of Christ, looking at his passionate suffering for us. In fact, this was Jesus' own language earlier to his disciples in Matthew Look at chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took his 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to be delivered over to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This was Jesus' prediction, and he actually said it even earlier to his disciples. If you look back in Matthew chapter 12. This was actually also the language of the prophets. Most crucially is Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. This is the language that the people of Israel failed to remember and believe. And it says this in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, this is great news. This is good news that we will never be good enough, yet Christ came to be good for us. He came and took our punishment so that we may have peace with God. This was his work. This was his goal. This was his mission. And he followed it all the way to death. Just a few thoughts for application as we end our time together. To the skeptic or seeker, if you're Worshiping with us this morning, I want to ask, have you dealt with the historical Jesus? Have you wrestled with the person and work of Christ? Have you dealt with his claims and his life and his work? In his book, Mere Christianity, author C.S. Lewis states this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Friends, this is our challenge. 
When we look at Jesus and all the hard things that he said, all the claims that he made about who he is, we can't just dismiss him as a great moral teacher. We have to really wrestle and grapple with who he is. Who is this man? Christian, I want to ask you this morning, where's your heart today? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ as your only means of salvation and the great judgment of God? What is your understanding of the work of Christ? Today, God is calling you to repentance of your own faulty beliefs and to seek refuge in Christ alone. This is not a single momentary moment of a sinner's prayer, but a whole life of dependence and repentance, looking to the work of Christ and the person of Christ. I urge you as uh, believers, as families, as small groups, take some time this week to read the gospel accounts of Jesus' last days. Or maybe read through the book of Romans or Ephesians and remind yourself of your true need for peace with God. Lastly, I want to encourage us all, even now, things are not always what they seem. God doesn't work according to our vision, our plan, or our timeline. When the Jesus' disciples were standing at the foot of the cross and he was suffering, their great leader, their teacher, their rabbi was suffering on the cross, I'm sure they had to be lamenting deeply in their hearts, crying out to God with questions like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? We must be encouraged that in that moment where God seemed so distant and it seemed like God was not at work, that he was doing the most wonderful work in the history of the earth. This is our encouragement. This is our hope that we can cling to Jesus in these hard times, that we can look to him, that we can rest assured that he has bought our peace with God through his work on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for such a great salvation. Thank you that you have offered us life even though we haven't deserved it that you had given us peace through the cross of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't shy away from going into Jerusalem, facing all the persecution and your death, and even taking our sin upon yourself. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord, this week as we meditate on your person and your work, move our hearts to deeper worship and trust of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.